When Allie Henney was a young girl, she took a bet at school that she couldn't be quiet for an entire week. She won that bet, but learned some really disturbing things in the process. In today's episode, Allie shares about her new book, I Won't Shut Up, Finding Your Voice When the World Tries to Silence You. Keep listening because I want you to hear Allie explain why having someone point out something you do or say as racist isn't the worst thing. I cannot wait for you to meet Allie. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all that is not good or true, this is the place for you. Before we dive into this episode, I need to tell you that Allie and I ran into so many crazy issues with recording this, from barking dogs to chatty kids to my own discovery when I went to edit this that I had used the wrong microphone. It was a whole thing. My audio editor did his very best to make my voice sound like I wasn't sitting across the room from the microphone, but some things just are not salvageable. So some of the audio that still works is in this episode, but I've also done more voiceover to re-record some of this to make it easier on your ears. So if some of the audio is a little strange, that's all on me. That's because it picked up from my camera mic instead of the mic right in front of my mouth. Still, this is a conversation I loved so much. This week was Juneteenth and a great time to share this episode in which Allie Henney joins me to talk about her experience as a woman of color in white evangelical spaces. It's an important conversation. You are going to learn a lot and you are going to love Allie. Let's go. Here's our conversation. Allie, you have a brand new book that I was just underlining and writing notes on. It is beautiful. I won't shut up. These well, are bold words. And they're words that you have you have earned through some really, really hard situations. And in particular, in white church spaces. Would you say that is the case? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that, that, that that's the case. I think that that's fair. Tell us just a brief summary about what birthed that book. And then I have some specific questions for you. So why I wrote this book. So I, I had... I had this sort of moment where I realized like, wow, I was living the end of the book or parts of the, the toward the, it's not the very end, but, but um, one of the, some of the last uh, chapters of the book, I was living those things while I was, or I was living the, the fallout while I was writing. As Allie was talking about how the beginning and end of her book have an overlap, it reminded me of chiastic structure that I learned about from Beth Moore. And I mentioned this to Allie. Yeah, I mean, it really, it, it was, a, it, it's not necessarily evident in the in the text, but it definitely represents, in my life, the chiasm. It, it absolutely, um, it absolutely did. It, it definitely was was very, very chiastic in structure. And so a lot of the things that I said, that, that I say toward the beginning of the book, of course, like, like I said, I was living some of the fallout of some of the things that happened toward the end of the book. And so I was in a place where um, I was really fed up with racism mm -hmm. and not that I wasn't fed up with racism before, um, before that, but it was just these specific, some of the specific things that happened where it's sort of, as I'm thinking about writing a book and I had been thinking about writing a book long before I had sat down um, to write this, but I was sort of like thinking about, well, I, I wanted to write something that was, that was kind of memoir-esque, that was memoir, but also commentary, but also all these different types of things. And so as I was writing 
as I was writing some of these things down, I realized that there was a theme of uh, being silenced. And there, there was a theme of feeling like I didn't, like I didn't have a voice and that fit in um, even with some of what I was experiencing at the time that I, that I had sat down to start writing. And so that was sort of um, where, where everything developed and where everything sort of, sort of took off from because of things that I had been experiencing, you know, a month, two months, three months, six months, um, mm -hmm. a year, a year before. There's a story that Allie shares in the beginning of her book. She so desperately wanted to fit in, and some boys bet her while she was a young girl that she couldn't be silent for a week. She took them up on that bet because she thought that would earn her the belonging that she wanted. That was a really big moment in your life. Yeah, yeah, that definitely, that was a moment that as I was thinking about, um, writing this book and just trying to think of moments that were representative of that, of that theme, I sort of realized like kind of, you know, doing the, doing the work and realizing, oh yeah, well, this moment is very exemplary. And there were several others that I could have, that I could have written about that had taken place, you know, within like two or three years of that. But I felt like that, 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 that bet that that was a very, that that was, that that was such, um, that was so illustrative of the experience of being a black kid and being a, a quote unquote, you know, loud black girl yeah. and people wanting, wanting me to be quiet and wanting me and wanting even, even at that early age, you know, even at 11 years old, receiving messages that told me that my voice didn't have value, that my voice didn't matter, that um, basically like you, everything would just be better. Like if you, if you were, if you were silent, if we, if you, um, if, if you just kind of like left us alone and, and stopped yeah. and stopped talking. And, and so even within that story, what, what ends up happening, what we end up, what we end up seeing and learning in this story is that there was, there became a point when my silence actually became inconvenient for mm -hmm. um for some of my peers but the but the ultimate sort of takeaway from it was that um was that there is the, the ultimate sort of takeaway was there there was this desire for me not to talk and it, and it didn't matter um that for some people it actually ended up becoming inconvenient there was this there was this motivation that was even a little bit racist that was behind it that was like we want you to be silent we don't we don't want you to talk we don't want yeah. you to have a voice Allie points out this dividing line in her life and in her relationships where she realized that she could do everything right and jump through all the hoops and it still wouldn't be enough People refer to this like the model minority where you have to be all the things that would never be requested of a white person like myself. Um, the model everything of whatever that whatever that structure, whoever set up the structure decided was the right way to be. And you realize that you can follow all the rules. And still. It's not enough. Yeah. You know, the moment is one of those things that I think. A lot of people, particularly those of us um, who are minorities, who came up in or spend time in majority spaces, there you, you can as, as a kid. I think that this is especially because it almost often it hits 
whenever you are a child or a teenager. Some people, it doesn't hit until they, they don't realize it until they're until they're much older. Um, just because often, you know, their their family or whatever whatever it is, they were shielded from racial realities or they just didn't sure. they just didn't know. They probably experienced certain things but didn't know that they were experiencing racism. I have literally encountered that with with black adults, with you know, with adults that are um, that are black and brown and indigenous. That they literally have gone their whole entire lives thinking, "Why well, never experienced racism?" And then something happens, or they and they and it's not even that they didn't have other other scenarios or other things happen, but they suddenly realize, "Oh, these things are racially motivated." Mm-hmm. I've experienced some things that I can say like this is this is racism this was this is racially motivated this was whatever and um but for the most part it's people that are ch- that that are children and teenagers that that come up in these majority culture contexts that we have a moment where regardless of what your identity is and how your cultural or racial identity is constructed you have a moment where you realize the implications of that so for myself, you know, for for me, I always knew that I was black and there wasn't and there wasn't a single moment that I didn't know that I where I didn't know that I was black. Um but then it's realizing the implications of my blackness. And so realize so even though, you know, I I knew and had internalized from a from a young age that black people experienced racism. I didn't know the word racism, but I yeah. knew what racism looked like. I knew, I knew about racial slurs. I knew about, um, about discrimination and that sort of thing. Like I knew that those things existed, even if I didn't have that language. Um, but then the moment that sort of happened with this bet was realizing that there, that there are like implications to that. There are implications to, Whenever people don't want you to to talk or whenever people are treating you a certain way and you realize that it's happening, not just because of your personality or whatever, but because you are black. And so in this story with this with this young man who who I have this bet with, one of the young men that I have this bet with, there's a point where he's where, um, you know, I'm basically like, hey, I won because I won the bet. Um, I guess I should say that. I guess so not leave anybody leave anybody in suspense. I won the bet. I was I was quiet. I didn't talk for a week at school, and um, <coughs> excuse me. So I, I didn't talk for a week at school. So then I show up to school on Monday, and I'm like, "Hey, I won the bet," and the person is just sort of like. Ba- like like he doesn't care like the main guy that i made the bet with he essentially yeah. doesn't care that i had won the bet and so i'm like okay but i won like you know shouldn't i get something should i like can i get a high five a congratulations or whatever and so the kid is really annoyed that i had won and he just and he lets me know that you know he wished that i that i didn't ever talk again and he didn't want me to he didn't want me to ever to ever talk again, basically. And so whenever I was just sort of like, you know, that's kind of messed up. Um, he proceeds to call me racial slurs. And so he calls me um, a total of three different racial slurs. But the first two racial slurs, I didn't 
I had never heard them before. And so I didn't realize that he was, that I didn't realize that he was calling me a racial mm-hmm. slur at first. It was kind of like, that's kind of suspicious. Like, like it's, it's sort of like, you know, you're saying this thing. Okay. It's just, it's a funny word. Okay. Whatever. Like I'm going to, you know, I, I censored myself a little bit because uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be, be cussing too much of in the book because there's actually some cuss words that I, that I said in, that I said in real life to, to, in, re, in response to this kid. But it's like, you know, okay. Yes, it is. Okay. Well, whatever dork. And like, and so it's going back and forth and then and it's going back and forth a couple of times and so then there's so then like the third time he says a racial slur that's not the n-word that's something that's something else that's it that's another sophisticated top tier top shelf racial slur that is not just you know i mean everybody knows what the n-word is but this guy was using he was using top shelf racial epithets that like people that not everybody like you know knows and so but i but i knew i knew what that specific one was so like you know this this kid is using these top shelf racial epithets and so i realized like the third time around i knew what he was saying and so of course you i deduced that the other two things were racial slurs they were racial slurs i didn't know and they were legitimate racial slurs that he was that he was using but i didn't know that at the time i was you know 11 years old i didn't know that i i didn't know but i felt like i knew like racial because because you, you know because yeah. your 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 family kind of makes you aware of certain things so you know whenever people are doing things and and saying things but these particular ones were ones that i was not that i was not aware of and so he said those things and it was and it was hurtful it was it was so hurtful it was very hurtful but it was also just like oh so that's what this is about Mm -hmm. and so it was this moment and so that the, the moment you know capital t capital m that those types of moments we have those moments where we're just like where you just where where people show their racism they show their 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 hand with racism mm-hmm. and it lets you know the implications of your identity and that where you might think oh you know we're we're cool we're friends we're whatever you know we're i'm at, i'm working at this job and you know everybody everybody here likes me whatever but there's something that moment there's mm-hmm. something that lets you know that sets you out it sets you apart and sets you out as as different sets you apart as as other and so that's that is that and that's and that's where i was i was at ali had come to believe that it was her job to prevent white people from being racist against her in her book she says this If I could show them I was a good black person, then maybe, just maybe, I wouldn't experience racism. I mean, it sounds like there's that that internal thing that says, you know, maybe if I just do all the right things. But there also is a very overt message that is sometimes literally said, are you sure you didn't X, Y, Z? Or did you make sure to do all these things? It should never be somebody's job to make sure somebody else treats them with a baseline respect. Tell me what it was like to realize that like, oh my goodness, I'm taking ownership for somebody else, you know, their job of do of being a decent human. You know, that moment, that type of moment was very freeing where I realized where you, you take on things that aren't yours to, to take on, right? Yeah. That's essentially what that is, was me as a, as a black person 
living and growing in predominantly white spaces where I felt like I had to take on white people's racism. And it was my job to, to, to absorb the blows because I couldn't just be, I didn't feel like that I could just be like, Hey, that's racist. Stop being racist. Mm-hmm. I knew. And it wasn't that, that it wasn't that I didn't think that people didn't realize that they were being racist. I, knew that they knew what they were doing but it was like it's like i know what they're doing and they know what they're doing but they're not going to do anything about it so it's my job not to not to do these things that that play into these stereotypes that whatever so that that way they don't act on their worst impulses Mm -hmm. so whenever i realized you know what actually i can't do that i can actually push back i can actually say no you no, I'm not going to be treated that way. Or, or I can actually say, you know, actually that was, that was racist or actually, you know what, that's not an appropriate way to talk to me. Or actually, you know what, that joke was actually very insensitive and inappropriate. Whenever I realized that I had the power to do that, that was so, that was freeing. Um, it took, of course, you know, there are things that you are programmed to do. There are things that you're programmed to think. And it took a while to get out of that, to, 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 to do to get out of that mindset to to change my mindset and i won't even say that today that i'm that i'm you know 100% there where as soon as i see something and hear something i'm like whatever i think that i'm that i'm a lot better but sometimes there are things that's just sort of like just because of muscle memory it's just sort of like okay somebody said something racist and it's like wait a minute no 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 that was racist don't do that um and so i'm and, and so that that was such a that was such a freeing thing to realize oh wait a minute this isn't this isn't mine to hold this isn't this isn't mine to carry This conversation reminded me that I have the privilege of opting in and out of conversations like this. Allie doesn't have that option, but she has modeled how she takes her own agency seriously and that she doesn't have to take responsibility for making others feel more comfortable. She doesn't have to take ownership of the things that she didn't break, and she doesn't have to resolve the tension for others. Yeah, and that's exactly it. I think that you sum that up. I think that you sum that up very well. That is it. That is exactly it. After the first act of Allie's book, she talks about coming to a point where she decides to speak the truth, even if it's uncomfortable for people. Yeah, you know, um, that part of the book that you reference um, is uh, it's sort of like it, it, it's titled like it's an intermission. It's the first kind of intermission in the book. And that's yeah, sort of yeah. deep, deep structure of the book. It's kind of I structured uh, some of the chapters and stuff is this kind of like a play or like a musical or whatever. But mm-hmm. um, so there's so there's this chapter that I have where um, it's sort of a transition point in the narrative where I go from talking about some of my early experiences um, with with injustice and racism into talking about what kind of is um, essentially going into my adult life, my, my college years and, and beyond. And mm-hmm. so there, um, is, so essentially that part of the book, the things that, that has happened where I, whenever I was growing up, where I had grown up, there's an aspect of where, you know, I had sort of just made peace with all that. And it's sort of, it, it is what it is, you know, my, my, uh, my mom and my in-laws and stuff, because my, I'm from the same town, um, as my husband. And so, you know, I have family that still, that still lives there. Um, so I still visit there regularly. It, it's whatever. I kind of have just sort of made my peace with it. But then this, but then everything beyond that point, um, even though some of the things that you know taken place 10, 15, some like almost, you know, even 20 years ago now, some of those things just for whatever reason, they feel they feel more fresh. They re- they yeah. represent a part of my life. Um, they represent a part of my life where 
you know, I was still trying to figure things out, still trying to figure myself out. Um, and so I endured a lot of things that I realized now I should not have had to endure. But again, to that point about just sort of feeling like racism, dealing with white people's racism was my responsibility. I took on a lot of things that weren't mine to take on. Um, I took on a lot of, a lot of, um, I took on a lot of things that weren't mine to take on. And Mm -hmm. so um, in doing that, the implications of that was that I ended up staying in situations and being around people who were unhealthy and not just in terms of yeah. racism just some some folks some of these folks were just unhealthy like some of these some of these folks some of these folks that you that you read about in the book it's just like it's like i can look at at, at it now and be like yo like this this pastor figure that's there this person was just this person was just unhealthy unhealthy and toxic like you know you take you take the misogynoir out of it right you take mm-hmm. yeah. you take some of the racial component out of it this person was just objectively not healthy and so yeah, but, then you, but then you add yeah. that back in and it's and it compounds what I experienced because it wasn't just that it wasn't just that I was experiencing this person and their dysfunction. I was yeah. experiencing this person and their dysfunction. And I was having you contend with racism and misogynoir and that, that's racialized sex. Many I layers. Having, I was having to contend of, with, with, so, yeah. with so many different so many different layers of it. So even but with, even within that, because it, the best way that I can think to describe it is that it's like I what what happened what is what happened what happened is what happened what happened is what happened and I own my story yet at the same time I couldn't help but think of the implications of telling my story mm-hmm. and so specifically thinking of some of the implications of if I talk about this pastor and how unhealthy this individual acted at times well this man still has a church he yeah. still has he still has people that go that go to his church. I still know people that still go that still go to this man's church. Yeah, yeah. And on one hand, like it's not like oh, I got I got to protect his reputation. I got to protect the man of God. It wasn't that. It was yeah. if I if I say that if I say some of these things, and these people and, and these people hear it and it and it and it shifts and shapes what they think about their pastor, and then like what is this? What if this person starts being unhealthy again? Like what if this mm-hmm. person starts acting? What if people, what if, what if somebody, what if, what if he reads it or what if somebody tells him about it? And then like, just, just all the, it's, it's all boogeyman stuff, right? It's like, you know, you're afraid of the boogeyman. Well, like, it's being afraid of the boogeyman, essentially. It's like, this is, this is the boogeyman. And so for me, the boogeyman was, well, what if, and it wasn't just, it wasn't just him, but it was other people that it was like, well, if I write about this and then people know, and then, and then somebody remembers something and then like, they're like, oh yeah, I guess what she wrote about you in, in her in that book that she wrote, yeah. and like whatever, whatever, whatever. And so it's the boogeyman of like, what happens if I tell if I tell the truth? Like, yeah, what you happens? To think through, like, what's the worst thing that could happen? You have like, to think through it. Yeah, it's like it's like what happens if I tell the truth? I mean, everything mm-hmm. everything that I said was was true, but like, mm-hmm. what's the implications of that? And so then, so then, it does it put me in the place then to experience harm again some of these people harming me again because i told the truth and so so am i gonna have to circle so is it gonna come back around am i gonna get phone calls and angry emails and all this other type of stuff and so that was and so that maybe sounds silly and maybe it doesn't and you know maybe it doesn't sound silly to your audience maybe some of you you all understand that no i think i don't think it sounds uh, silly at all like you you left a church that people that that people people were being harmful Mm -hmm. toward you 
And then speaking out about that, sometimes people get pissed that you spoke out about the thing because they just want, they just want their thing to be their thing. Right. Am I healthy enough? Do I have the support structures in place to deal with what could happen if I speak up, which is also a really empathetic way of that I've seen you handle even in this book that people are in situations or in organizations that are unhealthy where you give them permission to do what they need to do to survive. If you can't leave and get another job right away, mm-hmm. you, you don't give any, any shade to them and yes. no shame. Like mm-hmm. you, but you knew that you were in a place where this was, you were going to be okay. Come what may with this decision, you had the healing, the support structures, to speak what you need to speak in the way that you wanted to speak. Is that not yes. right? Yeah. And so I just, I really, that's, that's exactly it. There was a point when I just had to say, um, and actually some of this that didn't, because it's just, because I wanted that part of the book to be short, but some of the stuff that didn't make, yeah. some of the discourse that didn't make it into the book. Um, Cause like there's a book that, that a coworker recommended to me that, that I talk about in the book that helped me through this and helped me write through some of this. Um, but I was actually um, talking to one of my best friends, um, Tyler Burns, who is the uh, president of of the Witness Black Christian Collective. Um, mm-hmm. He's one of the hosts of the Pass the Mic podcast. Pass the Mic, yeah. Um, you know, Tyler, Tyler is Tyler's like my is like my little brother. He's um, as we're recording this today, it's his birthday. So happy birthday, Tyler! Um, he's thir- he's thirty he's thirty five this year. It's a and baby. So he, he is. I'm on third. I'm going to be thirty eight uh, this year. He's he's like the the little brother that I never had. And and maybe kind of always wanted, but maybe not him, but but kind of him, but not really. Mm-hmm. Um, but just that's just me being shady toward Tyler in case in case he hears this. Uh, but but then, maybe not but then, really you, Tyler. But it, you'll do. But, but, but maybe it's you. But, but you'll do. But then also Tyler. <laughs> Tyler's the oldest in his family, and so I'm the big sister that he never had. His his wife pointed out to him that he, she's like, he's like. Allie's, a, Allie's the big sister that you that mm-hmm. you ever had. So sometimes I get I get them together. We we have we have a really a really fun, interesting relationship. And so I was mm-hmm. talking to him. He was one of the the people that I talked. He was actually one of the, one of the people who pushed me to to write this book. But early on, as I was as I was um, in the proposal phase and and really getting deep into writing this book, I had a conversation with him about about this book and about mm-hmm. some of these things that I was going through and some of the things that I, and I was really just sort of like going back and forth. and was just like, I don't, I don't really want to write about some of the stuff. And so I was like, you know what, maybe what I should do is I should just like tell people straight up, like, you know, yeah, I'm going to be an unreliable narrator here. And like, I'm just going to find a way to tell the stories without actually telling the stories and without actually potentially like implicating people or blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And so, you know, Tyler, we were, we were having this conversation. So it seems like, yeah, you know, I, I completely understand why, why you would do that. Like, I, I, I get it. And I think that, and I think that you could pull that off, but I also don't want to see you um, short circuit what you could be doing, what you could be doing with your voice. I don't want to see you short circuit yeah. that. And so, like, I understand, but but I don't want to see you. I don't want to see you do that. Yeah. And so I was like, so I took, you know, what he said. I thought about it. I took and I took it. I took that to heart. And so then, as I was going, and really starting to, and I was just like, you know what? Uh, then, of course, you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, kind of speaks to me, and the Holy Spirit's just like, yeah, you you can't you can't vague book about these experiences. Like, if you're if you're going to talk, like, you talk about it, you need to talk about it. You got to talk about it. And so, so kind of just the combination of all those things, I just realized like, oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta talk about it. And, you know, all these other people, all these people, you know, the boogeyman, you know, the boogeyman under the bed, the boogeyman in, in the closet, the boogeyman peering into my window. At this point, I just have reached a place with it that is sort of like, um, 
you know what? Like if you if you didn't want people to know what you did, you shouldn't have showed out. Yeah. And like that's you know, that's like my mom used to always say to me, my grandma used to always say to me that it's like if you don't if you don't want to get in trouble, don't show your ass. Yeah. And so like that is so like it's like, oh, OK, well, if these people if these people don't want to others to know about what they how they behaved, then they, then they shouldn't have, they shouldn't have acted up. And so that's so that's where where I sort of landed with that. Now for a quick break. Not long ago, I made a decision that changed my life and my relationships. I started going to counseling, and I'm so glad I did. If you've been considering getting started with counseling, Faithful Counseling makes it so easy to get started. I know you don't like talking on the phone, so it's good news that you can start the process without even picking up the phone to talk to someone. The Untangled Faith Podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. It is also brought to you by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with more than 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. There are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. Fill out a questionnaire, and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com slash untangled. Now back to the show. When Allie decided to speak up, she found community. She found her voice and reclaimed it. She wasn't taking up more than her space. She was taking her own space, space that was already hers. I mean, that was your seat all along. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't feel like a big deal that you sat there. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. And then you were able to have some really, really great connections. One of the most powerful things Allie shared in her book was that in the white church, she has often had to choose between being her authentic self and being safe. I asked Allie to talk about that with us. I, I won't necessarily try to speak for all Black people, but for myself, what, 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 what I can say for my for myself, but I think that a lot of people would agree with me in saying this, a lot of Black folks would agree with me in saying this, is that I feel unsafe because when I speak the truth, and whenever I seek my truth, suddenly there is deflection. And there is defensiveness and there is upset. And there are all of these things that then put that responsibility back back onto me. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden I am made responsible for your feelings and for your emotional well-being. Because all yeah. of a sudden becomes it becomes white guilt and white tears and white whatever, defensiveness, um, rage, and all, all of these things. And, and so then you're having to comfort the person that... Exactly. You're having to comfort the person who did the wrong thing. So it it becomes almost like a and and some people even can be receptive to hearing that they did something wrong, but they still want to feel good about the fact that they were receptive. So it becomes so it sort of becomes about like this is a, a, a reference that maybe some of your audience will get, maybe some of your audience won't. But there's an episode of The Golden Girls where Rose is with a man and that man dies. And so she has the responsibility of going to this man. She was dating this man. She didn't know that he was married. She finds mm-hmm. out that he was married. So she feels a responsibility to go to this man's wife to tell her that he was cheating on her. 
Mm-hmm. So she goes to the, she goes to the wife. They're sitting down. They're they're talking, and so then all of a sudden Rose starts getting all upset about the fact that this man had died and that he had died while he was with her and all this other type of stuff. And so then the man's wife, because because the 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 woman like just learned that her husband had died and yeah. why and how he had died and some of the situation around why he had died, and so because she just thought like oh he just died, but no like he yeah died. I remember <laughs> he 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 he. he he died. They were together com- when he died. He, they were together. He was in a compromising position whenever he died. And her perceptions of him being healthy and all this other type of stuff is crashing down. And but she's sitting here, and there's a point when Rose is like, crying. Rose is Rose is the one that's upset. Rose is like losing it. And yeah. this woman is like, okay, Mrs. Nyland, I need for you to get a hold of yourself because I'm about to be upset. And so, but this, but this woman who is the who is like the victim here mm-hmm. i mean rose of course she wasn't intentionally like having an affair with somebody but it like it wasn't her moment to really be upset she had had her moment to be upset whenever the dude died so now it's this it's this this dude's wife's chance to to be upset and it's her moment because she's just now finding all of this stuff out but rose is like freaking out and is upset and so it's like and so then the the wife is having to comfort her well that's yeah. often how black folks have to deal with white people whenever it comes to racism y'all done did the racism y'all done that the incident has done has done happen it's whatever so we're telling you hey like this is a this is a thing like the, the thing that you did you did and can you not do this again or whatever it is well then y'all start crying and start getting all upset and start getting all the whatever whatever the feelings are because it's always feelings and it's always yeah. big feelings but whatever the feelings are then we have to attend to your emotional and mental and physical and spiritual well-being yeah. instead of dealing with, instead of attending to our own. So we have to go elsewhere to attend to our own wounds because we have to, we have to uh, nurture you all. And, and I think especially yeah. for black women, we're expected to then take on that mammy yeah. nurturing role, especially for white black women, especially for white women. We have to, t- we then become mammified where mm-hmm. we have to take on that emotional, like, Oh, it's okay. Miss Scarlet here, dry your tears, like whatever, whatever. It's really like, no, just like, just, you know, get your poop in a group. Like it just, just don't do this racist thing. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be like that. Like you can just be yeah. like, Oh, I, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I I did that. I own that. Thank you for letting me know. I'm going to do better. Um, is there anything immediately that I can do to help? And then going and and taking your your tears, taking your whatever to your prayer closet, taking yeah. it to your priest, taking it to your prayer closet, whatever whatever it looks like. And um, yeah. And so like it just so it it creates this situation. Of, and I'm being you know maybe a bit glib about it, but it creates a situation where that doesn't that doesn't feel like safety that doesn't feel no, like emotional yeah. safety if the yeah. person if somebody can just argue it's i'm, I'm talking about like some of the m- more mild emotions that people have but if somebody's gonna if, yeah. I'm, if i'm gonna have to if it's gonna all of a sudden become like the oj simpson trial to and i gotta and i gotta argue with you and i gotta and i gotta convince you this is gonna suddenly become you know a, a lincoln douglas debate or, or a cross-examination debate because i've yeah. got to convince you that you did that you did something wrong rather than you just saying okay you know i need i need to take this yeah. to my journal and figure out what's going what's going on and that just becomes that just becomes so difficult that just that yeah. becomes that becomes so hard and so it doesn't it just doesn't 
feels it doesn't feel good it doesn't it don't it don't feel safe my therapist has said if someone is coming to you and they have taken their box off the shelf to show you that this is a really hard and difficult and painful thing you don't get to go immediately to your shelf and grab something off of it that is painful for you your own issue stays on that shelf for now and be honored that your friend was willing to be honest and vulnerable with bringing this difficult issue to you. It was a risk for your friend to bring it up. This is our move to say, thank you. And I'm sorry. It's Mm -hmm. okay to feel bad about it. I don't hear you saying you shouldn't feel bad, but to understand that leaving my own things on the shelf is that one of the best gifts I can do is to keep room for you brought your, your thing off the shelf first. This is the thing that we're looking at right now. Mm -hmm. And we will all have the the tendency to want to defend ourselves first. Mm -hmm. It's a, I think it's a muscle that we're going to have to exercise to make Mm -hmm. it so that our first response isn't, but my intent. Something else I think that's, that's important for people to recognize is that being called a racist or being told that your actions are racist or insensitive or whatever, that's not the worst thing that you can be told. Yeah. And I think that white people have it in their mind whenever a minority, quote unquote, I, I don't like this term, but people say it accuses them of racism. Because I think that the, yeah. that the term accusation, that yeah. it it makes it into something that then can be disputed and we can sit and go back and forth about and, and, it, and it turns it into, into like a courtroom drama and litigation and I've got to present evidence and all this other type of stuff. So I don't really like the term accusation. Um, but I think that some people, that's really how they feel is that they feel like all, this, all of a sudden I'm on trial and then if people think that I'm racist, then blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I might, I might experience consequences and might experience loss and blah, 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 blah through that. But like most of the time, unless you just really messed up, like, I mean, there's some stuff that's just like, you know, yeah, you really did something that was horrible and you might need to experience some consequences for that. And that's just, and that's just how it is because we, we, have to experience consequences for for our actions. Um, I don't want to say it like that's probably not the right way to say, it, but like sometimes yeah. we, like our 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 actions aren't their are implications. And I'm not saying like you have to experience consequences. Like I'm going to beat you up. Like it's not like that. That's not what I'm it's saying. It's a natural saying, result. Just, yeah, it's a natural consequences. Or I think of consequences consequences as like these are natural things that happen. Yeah, and so sometimes we do things, and the consequence of that the consequences are good consequences we have things that, that the implications and everything are good and some things we have the implications aren't that good and the, and the consequences of things that we experience so that's not to, so that's not to say oh you have to experience consequences yeah like it like a punitive type of thing it's just that's how things are now there are sometimes yeah. whenever we can be spared of the consequences whenever people can can exercise grace with us they can give us they can give us room and leeway to and and, to, and people can shield us from the consequences of our actions yeah. um that's always a possible thing but i say all of that to then say that like somebody telling you that you did something racist White people want to take it as like this is some sort of character assault. But first of all, the fact that especially if you're dealing with a black woman, that somebody that they're going to take the time to tell you that it's wrong. I don't usually go off on people unless I know that they can do better. So if I know that you can do better, I know if I know that you're a better person than this, that's what I'm going to be. That's what I'm going to fight you. 
That, that's 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 what I'm gonna that's what I'm gonna fight you and be like, no, this is you are doing this and this isn't okay. This institution is being like this and this isn't and this isn't okay. Whatever the situation is, I'm like if I'm gonna go off, then that's because I that's because there's still hope and I believe in you. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever. The one of the worst things ever. Black woman just says like, okay, sure, yeah, go ahead. If you like if you like it, I love it. That's fine. If people whenever we whenever we go silent, whenever we just say, OK, well, sure, whatever. That's the point a lot of times that it means that we've given up. So, like, yeah. if somebody that I just know is just going to be racist and I just know they're going to say something that's a, that they do not care. They don't care that what they are saying or doing hurts me or hurts other people or is just like not a nice thing to do. If they if they demonstrate if somebody demonstrates that enough in their life. I'm not going to spend my time trying to convince that person. I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend my time. Like if I'm part of a church and there's something that's, that's going on that isn't, that isn't right. I'm not going to spend my time trying to, trying to push back and trying to fix it. If I didn't think that the people could do better. Yeah. yeah. But if I think that they could do better, then yeah, I'm going to be there and I'm going to, I'm going to fight and I'm going to, and I'm going to push and I'm going to push back and I'm going to make, and I'm going to make sure that you're, that you're doing what you're supposed to do. And so the fact that, that you're, that your friend, that people are willing to be there and to contend with you, that speaks a lot. But a lot of white people take the, the passion and the no, like we're going to be here. And th- they take that as, they take that as an attack when it's like, no. People actually believe that you can do better because if we didn't yeah. think that you could do better, we just would have given up on you and we would just and we would just take ourselves elsewhere. And we, we yeah. would just we would take our business elsewhere. We would take our worship elsewhere. We would take our money. We would take our resources. It's not worth it. It's not worth the emotional investment in it. Like Exactly. Why? It's a lot of energy and stress and frustration. And you already know there's nothing going to come from it. That's a powerful framing of it. And also, I love what you said about you know, using the word accusing, maybe it's the wrong, like is the wrong thing. You know, we're just naming something. Naming mm-hmm. something is just a neutral thing. This is, yeah. this is what it is. What can we do about it? You know? exactly. That, that, exactly. That snake over there is poisonous. I'm not mm-hmm. accusing it. It's just, it just, just calling you, calling it what it is. <laughs> like we're not putting the snake on trial. Hey, 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 Copperhead, are you are you poisoned? Like, like I mean, you can either, and I think that that's that that is a very good illustration because you can either. What there's a Copperhead, there's a there's a cotton mouth. Those are those are pretty poisonous snakes where where I come from, and you can say like that's a Copperhead or that's a cotton mouth. Like leave that, like leave that alone. Like don't do that. You're you're naming what that is. Now somebody could go and be like, well, no, that's okay. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pick it up. I'm just gonna step yeah. over here. Like I don't I don't care. And like you can and you can do that and you can take your chances with that and that's and that's fine. Or you can realize that somebody is trying to tell you something that could that could spare you a lot of hurt, a lot of heartache, can spare you a, a medical visit, can spare you losing a limb, like that sort of that sort of thing. Like and you and you just don't and you just don't want to take that. Well, a lot of times with racism, yeah. it's like, hey, here's this poisonous thing. Here's this here's this venomous thing yeah. that's here. We're telling you that it's venomous so you can avoid it. So you cannot yeah. do and it. And it's not just dangerous to one party. It's dangerous mm-hmm. to all the parties. Exactly. Yes. In different ways, right? There's yes. there's different sorts of ramifications to mm-hmm. it. But the person that is wielding the words and actions that are racist, they are not going to be untouched by it in some way. Exactly. Even if they don't realize it. Allie mentioned the idea of racial justice theater in her book. 
I asked her to explain that to us and tell us how we can avoid it. Yeah, so it's just, you know, putting on a show. It's whenever people in organizations put on a show of caring about racial justice, but really like, you know, black people, brown people, people of color, they're just kind of props. And, you know, social justice language and ideas and stuff, it's just all kind of, it's just all something. It's a show. It's there. It's a show. It is for show. There's no real, there's no real substance to it. And so then the way that people, individuals, and the way that organizations can avoid that is just by being for real like be for real about your intentions be for real about the amount of time and resources that you want to spend um that you want to dedicate toward Mm anti-racism um and this kind of even goes hand in hand with there's there's something else in the book that i talk about about strategic silence about how organizations um often will white-led organizations will often practice strategic silence and that's when Whenever the cost is low, whenever it's it's you know e- an easy thing to do um, to to be anti-racist or to say we're against racism, they'll do that thing, but then remain strategically silent whenever there comes a, a chance to take a more substantive um, stance. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, you know they might uh, an organization might tweet on Martin Luther King Jr. Day and be like, "Oh, we we stand for freedom," blah 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 blah, mm-hmm. but then you know. It, time comes, you know, there's a there's a black man, black woman, black person laying dead in the street. Mm-hmm. And then and, and people are saying black lives matter and people are, are saying, you know, defund the police. People are saying all these things and you sort of sit back and don't and don't want to say anything. And, and it's like, oh, well, you know, but we you know, we don't want to we don't want to seem you know partisan. We don't want to seem like we're taking We don't want to whatever. And that that's strategic silence. So you could so yeah. you are going to speak up about racism whenever it costs you nothing. It costs you nothing to say to, 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 you know, post a picture of Martin Luther King on Martin Luther King Day and be like, oh, he stood for justice and freedom. That costs you nothing. That costs you nothing to say, yeah, well, we stand for diversity and, and, and inclusion and we we you know, all people matter, blah, 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 blah. That doesn't that doesn't um, cost you anything, but it costs you something whenever you then have to put it on the line and share it on what might be an unpopular opinion for some people mm-hmm. and um, go against maybe what some people in your church, what they, what they care about or some people at your work, maybe there are people at your work that just that, you know, they're against BLM and they, and you know, they, you know, they, they maybe think that black people matter, but all lives matter. And, you know, but we should also respect the police and blue lives matter and whatever, whatever the joint is, you don't want to upset those people. So you're just not going to make a statement whenever you should be making a statement. And so mm-hmm. that, that's, racial justice theater whenever it's like oh yeah. cool you know look we like we're gonna have a dei training whenever whatever time whenever time comes for the rubber to actually meet the road and for you to have for you to substantively substantively support people then it's oh well you know well we don't want to well you know we don't want to rock the boat we don't want to do anything mm-hmm. you know we don't we we, we don't want to do anything that would that would upset people you know we don't want to cause unnecessary division and all this other type of stuff I mean, and I I see this ramping up again with another election cycle coming soon. Is this is going to be another opportunity to make some hard decisions and be willing to deal with some people being upset? The racist rhetoric has gotten louder, and some of us have been able to uh, pretend like it wasn't there for a long time, and. You know, some people just open their mouths a little louder in the last eight years or so. Yes. You know, we have reached a point 
and I shouldn't I shouldn't necessarily say reached because I mean we've been there. It's yeah. been, the, the stakes of politics have always been high and it's always been privileges be like, oh, well, I don't have to think I can vote. I can vote you know, red or I can vote blue. It doesn't matter. I'm going to vote for the best person for the job. Yeah. People of privilege always have people of privilege can do that. Those yeah. of us who we see elections, we see who's in power and in office and all these other types of things. We see implications to that. But yeah. I can even appreciate that. The stakes of the election of 2004, which was the first election that I that I voted in, um, mm -hmm. I can see that the stakes for the election of 2024 are much different and much higher than whenever I voted in 2004 and or even whenever I voted in 2008 i mean even whenever i voted in 2000 i mean this, the stakes of the 2008 election was history right that was the main narrative there was that was the history because either way it was either going to be first black president or first woman vice president so there was aside from all the other like politics of it there was just some history that, that was there i mean even 2012 2016 ended i mean i just i'm i, I just i just never thought that people it was a we're actually going to go moment. through with it. It was like it was so. It was we're really so, doing this. It's like we're really doing this. And so what's what's interesting is this is like an aside, but not but not really. So I lived in Virginia. Um, Virginia is a super Tuesday mm -hmm. state. So I lived mm -hmm. in Virginia for the first part of the 2016 election cycle. Then I moved back home to Missouri um, for the for the end of it. Um, I did not vote twice. I I could have voted twice, as in like because I lived in the state and I, and I, and I had moved, I did not vote. I did not vote twice. I did not get my, um, because I, I think I probably could have voted in the Missouri primary. Um, but I didn't because I had voted in the Virginia primary. And, and so I just thought like on principle, like I shouldn't vote in two primaries. Um, but anyway, um, but, but I, but, but so Virginia was a super Tuesday state. Right. And so I, so I voted not that I was a Republican, but I was like, Oh, I'm going to vote in the, in the, Republican election because like it's because I'm like I, I want to don't I don't want like Donald Trump I don't yeah, want to make sure people are at the top like, of the it's like I, I would vote like I would vote in the Republican primary um because by that it was like you know Hillary I felt like at that point in the Democratic was a foregone conclusion it was, it was the foregone conclusion so I'm like I want to vote in the Republican primary so we can try to like push somebody up that's not Donald Trump because like these idiots are going to vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> they're going to, they're going to, they're going to make it. And so, but it was so weird because he wasn't even, he, he, it, to my remembering, it's like, he wasn't even, nobody was really like the clear runaway. He was just, he was getting like a third of the vote, but that third of the vote started to make a difference as people started to drop out. But then he just, he just hung on. And that's how, so I remember like in 2016, whenever they watching the, the national, the Republican national convention and be like, Hey, I know that's it's, I know how the primaries went, but they're not like an, they're not going to actually vote this person in, right? Like, Surely, gonna, like somebody's going to step up. They're going to be like, no, actually, yeah, we your head will prevail in the well, end. We need Sean sure. Kasich. We need Jeb Bush. We need anybody other than this person. Like, and so it's like it's like, oh wow, they they really did that. And then I was like, okay, fine. The Republicans, like they, the Republicans did that, whatever. But certainly, if we are if we are given the option between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Yeah, people aren't good. Like Christians 
aren't going to vote for Donald Trump. Why? Because he kept on like it was just scandal after scandal after scandal, especially like after, you know, the locker room talks. I'm like, there's no way that these people are going to vote for him. There's no like you Mm -hmm. just just on principle, like they're either just not going to vote or they're not going to vote for him. And so I was so I mean, a lot of people probably like, well, I wasn't shocked. I was shocked. I was I went to bed. I went to bed on election night. Because I was, because I was pregnant, and so I was, I could not. I usually stay up. Like, there's until the no end. tired like pregnant. Tired. There's no tired like pregnant. Tired. <laughs> I had been, I had been going all day. I thought like I'm gonna stay up for whatever. So I went to bed thinking that Hillary Clinton was gonna win because she was winning whenever I went to bed. So I went to bed thinking like, and I think I, that there was one point where like I woke up because um, I got I went to sleep and I slept really hard and then I woke up and I was checking and it was all of a sudden like oh well maybe Hillary Clinton's not gonna win but I was like oh that just must be like that just must be you know drop like yeah. like you know election drama like whatever like I'm going back to sleep and then I woke up and then I think that the way if I remember correctly I think the way that I found about it found out about it was that a friend had sent me a Facebook message and was like oh my god I'm so sorry and I was like sorry for what (laughs) what's going on i look and i'm like oh my god donald trump's president this isn't this can't this can't be true but it was so it was so consequential and of course 2020 was was like consequential so this election feels so consequential but people just think that like oh well you know it's just politics it's just it's just this and it's just that it's just whatever but it's but it's really not a lot of us are out here it really feels like fighting for our lives and there's a lot of us that are disillusioned and i'm disillusioned in a lot of ways because i mean you know i'm not an overly political person um i am political in the sense of like i get involved in politics and i try to learn and try to vote because that's that's the best thing that's the best thing that i know how to but but i'm not i'm not partisan I am more partisan now than what I have been, but I actually don't really believe in the Democrat. But I'm not I'm not in love with Democrats either. I'm not like one of those people that's like, oh, you know, it's there's bad people on both sides. And it's not both sidesism for me. It's just like, no, like they're like we need radical, one completely side different really politics. up the rhetoric and emboldening people that are really mm-hmm. dangerous to minorities. Yes. yes. And then one side is doing that. I've never seen so much horror horrifyingly awful rhetoric that yeah. just gives the path to the worst of the worst and the people that are literally dangerous mm-hmm. and honestly the democrats are, are too are at fault for this because they because they tolerate it they want to have conversations with people that you shouldn't be having conversations with mm, if you're word. sitting down at a table with nine nazis you have 10 nazis at that table Period. That's it. That's that. That's <laughs> it. That, and so Democrats want to have discussions and they want to hold hands and all this across the aisle bull yeah. mess. And it kind of normalizes what should be normalized. Exactly. It, it, it says, well, these are valid opinions. Yeah, we can we can disagree. Uh, we can disagree on certain like ideas of like, how are we going? How are we going to make sure that election districts aren't gerrymandered to yeah. where everybody has a voice. We can we can have discussions yeah. about that. But people saying these people don't shouldn't have the right to vote, that's like though that's not a, that's not a discussion. And they shouldn't but be able to have jobs or exist. They shouldn't yeah, like, they shouldn't be able to they shouldn't be able to you know, or they should only have these certain jobs over here that we don't want. Like there's just whew. so so I really so I really get frustrated. You see got me got me going here. I really get frustrated <laughs> with the Democratic Party because where they should just be like no. 
we're not no we're not gonna have we're not gonna have these conversations well, and the frustration no we're not gonna work with you earlier like you expected more of them exactly that's why you're frustrated that's why i'm frustrated because I, I expect you to be like it's like but, you know it's like yeah. i i expect you to say no marjorie taylor green we're gonna vote you out of this no lowen lowen bobert you don't get you don't get to be here you're saying all this you don't you don't get to be here and so fine your people voted you in here your people are racist but they voted you in here you don't get committee assignments you don't get to have anything yeah. but there should just be there should just be a no and it's not that, and it's not that Democrat, well, but Democrats don't have the majority. It doesn't matter. Sometimes you have to stand on the principle. These people have demonstrated that they, that, that they will go low. They will go, they will go to hell. They will mm-hmm. set the bar in hell and they will go to hell to do the most harm that they can possibly do. And y'all just want to sit and be, and y'all expect these people to play well and to play right and to play yeah. decent. I like getting Allie fired up. That's fun. Allie, I'm really glad you didn't shut up. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having I, me on. Thanks for having, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I, I don't take it lightly when I ask somebody, a black woman, to share your hard thought wisdom with a very white audience. So I am so grateful. I want my audience to go buy your book. I won't shut up by Allie Henny. It is so good. It's a wonderful resource. I'm going to put a link to the show notes. So good. I am so grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangled Faith Podcast. I've saved some of my conversation with Allie to share with the Patreon community. So make sure you check that out. You can find that at patreon.com slash untangled faith. The Patreon community is the primary way this podcast is funded. This is a great time to jump in there to provide support for the show and to access some bonus things that I save only for my patrons. You can find links to that and other resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes, which you can find on your podcast app or by going to untangledfaithpodcast.com and clicking on episodes. If you're on social media, I would love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pianic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.